We are coming towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I will be sad to leave it. It has been uh, a great source of encouragement, and uh, one of the things that led uh, our former rector, Keith, to choose Matthew was he said, it's time we focused on the teachings of uh, Jesus again. We should never be very far away from the teachings of Jesus. And that has been our subject over the past several weeks and indeed the past few months as we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount. As I usually do, I have provided um, an outline. Um, there's an outline of the Sermon on the back of the front page and then there is a translation on the front. And I want to begin on the back side uh, where it says outline of the sermon. Are we good? I hope you have it on, uh, on Zoom as well. I know it's okay. It uh, can be a challenge sometimes to bring up, but um, that's okay. I'll tell you where we are as we go along. Uh, I want to review the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a good thing to take a step back and look at where we have been. One of the main themes of the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom righteousness. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. This was something that was promised in the Old Testament. It was a time when God was going to have his reign and his way among God's people in a new and powerful and definitive way. And when Jesus came, he brought that reign in his own person and in his own teachings and in his own deeds. And yet because Christ kind of came prematurely, as it were, before the end of time, it's true in a sense that the kingdom has come in Jesus as well as the fact that the kingdom is yet to come. So although the kingdom of God was among us in Jesus and is among us when the church is following God's will and we are at its best, it's also true that the kingdom is yet to come. So as many scholars like to put it, and I think rightly, uh, we are between the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and is present amongst us, but it is not yet fully manifest. And as I was looking through the Sermon on the Mount and recalling where we were this week, it occurred to me that there were a number of catchphrases that summarized the Sermon on the Mount thus far. And I've put them on the outline if you have it. We began with the Beatitudes. And there Jesus spoke to a group of people, many of whom were downtrodden. And his message really was that all shall be made right. And if you look at each of those Beatitudes, uh, there is some point of need that people have that Jesus promises is going to be made right. And one of the teachings of the kingdom is that all shall be made right. Jesus began that. We see it in our midst as we worship Jesus, and we shall see it in the end. And in these times, dear friends, um, that is good news indeed, because we realize that not everything is right with the world. Not everything is right in our own lives. We feel caught between advances that we experience and yet things that set us back. So we began with the Beatitudes, which bring us good news. And then Jesus affirmed that his teaching was a fulfillment of Old Testament law, not a replacement of it. And so the second tenet was to go deep with God's commands, to go deep with God's commands. So we are not simply to avoid murder, we are to avoid anger. We are not simply to avoid adultery, we are to avoid having lustful intent towards others. We are to avoid easy out divorcing. We are not to take oaths, not because oaths are bad in particular, but oaths assume that there are times when we're not telling the truth and we should always tell the truth. We're not to retaliate. 
we're not only to love our friends, but also our enemies. And so chapter 5, in a way, was dealing with going deep with God's commands. And then another tenet is, another tenet is get real with God. Get real with God. As I was looking upon the Sermon on the Mount this week, I, I felt uh, convicted afresh from this because there is something within each of us that likes to live by sort of saying the right things, looking good in front of others, um, sort of maintaining this profile of spirituality. And Jesus, in effect, tells us that that is no good at all, really. If anything, it's a problem. And so we need to get real before God rather than appearing real before others. And I thought this week of the number of times I said, uh, yes, we'll pray for you. And I uh, realized how little sometimes we pray for people. We say it, sounds good, but if we're not actually doing it, then there's a problem. We like to appear righteous before others. Someone said that uh, prayer is like an iceberg. Uh, Eight-ninths of it are under the water, and you only see one-ninth of it above the water. And the point was that our prayer lives and our practice of righteousness and living the kingdom ought to be all of that stuff under the water. And it's okay for other people to see it, but that ought to be only a small percentage of what it is that we're actually doing in terms of following the kingdom teachings of Jesus. Very convicting things, very important things. So getting real before God avoids uh, in, included um, donating money discreetly, fasting without showing off, praying without showing off, and signs of going deep include going the extra mile, doing things not for earthly credit, acting righteously in private. Another tenet is to invest in what is eternal. And here we can think of things like Jesus saying, don't store up your treasures on earth where things rot and things disappear, but rather store up your treasures in heaven. It's not that we're not to invest, but that we are to invest in what really matters and that which is eternal. And then a fifth tenet, and these are by no means comprehensive, brings us a little closer to where we are today, and that is believe in God's care and provision. Jesus first taught this when he was teaching us to pray. And he said, don't feel like you need to go on and on in your prayers because God knows already what you need. So we were reminded of the fact that God loves us and that God knows what our needs are and he wants to respond to our needs. And so with that, but for an excursus, we're going to come to verses 7 to 11 of Matthew chapter 7, the subject of which, again, is prayer. It's the A-S-K portion, ask, seek, knock, and ask is a handy acronym for those three things, ask, seek, and knock. But you know, I couldn't help uh, but want to share with you a little excursus relating to uh, the war in Ukraine. And this is something that is uh, obviously such a potent and uh, just gut-wrenching topic that a brief mention doesn't do it justice. But I want to tell you that for years, I have been hearing people promote the myth of the moral advancement of humanity. Uh, our prime minister said it a couple of years ago when somebody asked him a question about why we're doing things the way we are. And he said, because it's 2021. 
And you think, well, what, what is that? I mean, maybe it was even 2020. But there's this idea that comes from um, people's belief in uh, advancement through evolution and anthropology and other things that somehow we're getting morally better. And we've had an awful reminder the past month with the siege of Mariupol. This, my friends, is 8th century BC, where Assyria holds siege to a city of Judah. And they surround the place and they wait for the people to get starved out. They build siege ramps so that they can climb over the walls. When they find soldiers, they impale them like they're on um, barbecue spits. And it has been a real wake-up call for many of us. Maybe it's because we see people who have the same skin color that many of us do in a place, uh, Europe, which we often think of as being sort of a, maybe a place where there's um, advancements in science and technology. We see uh, the entire country of Ukraine just being leveled for no good reason at all. My friends, Jesus in this passage, once in passing, says, you guys are evil. And I just want to remind us that that is really very true. We are evil. And there is an assumption in the Sermon on the Mount about um, our own evil natures. Someone summarized the Sermon on the Mount, highlighting these things as follows. 7.11 refers to human beings as evil. That's in our passage. The Sermon on the Mount takes for granted, one commentator writes, a strong biblical doctrine of human corruption. All swirl about in the abyss of sin. Sinners persecute saints, 5.10-12, 38 38-48. People kill. 521, they get angry, 522 to 26. They commit adultery, 527. They divorce their spouses to marry others. They take oaths because the lie is so prevalent. Someone has rightly said, by the way, that one of the first victims in war is truth. And we see that in the beguiling of um, many Russian citizens. They use religion for their self-glorification. They occupy themselves with storing up earthly treasures. They fail in generosity. They serve money. They foolishly worry about secondary matters, and they pass judgment on others. My friends, even if you believe in evolution, uh, that kind of thing doesn't happen on the moral level. There's no reason to believe that. There's no reason to believe that somehow uh, things are getting better on a moral frame. And these things, um, if we are to believe what the scientists tell us about evolution, if you believe in that, um, take millions of years, not thousands of years. So we have not improved one iota from the 7th century BC when the Assyrians were impaling Judeans by besieging their cities. We just see it and are reminded. If there is one tiny little silver lining on the cloud, and I'm not suggesting that there is, but if there is, it is a reminder that we are sinful to the core. Sigmund Freud, after he did much of his writing, uh, was affected by the First World War, and he saw the same kind of thing happening in Europe that you and I are seeing today, and he revised his psychology to factor in, not simply that we have inert sort of infantile sexual drives, but he added to it that somehow we are predisposed to wanting to hurt one another. And he says it's part of human nature. My friends, all the more striking it is that we experience the grace that is to be found in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus comes knowing that we are evil, and he brings us into the kingdom. He promises good things in our passage, not to the righteous, but to sinners. 
saying, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask then, unremittingly and without doubting, however poor your efforts to gain holiness, however weak your strength, and you will receive great gifts far beyond anything that you desire. My friends, we are evil. God is good. Someone once summarized all of biblical history as um, the following. Um, God created a world that is good. Uh, we messed it up. And God is in the business of redeeming what has been damaged. And we pray for that as we look on the news and remember not simply places uh, that include, not simply the Ukraine, but other places as well, such as Yemen, Afghanistan, and other places. So that's a bit of a, a downer, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to share that because um, there's a rare opportunity for us to be reminded of the fact that um, there is no such thing as moral improvement on the human level. Apart from the grace of God, we dwell in the Ukraine and we dwell in Mariupol. Our text today has been translated afresh on the uh, opposite side of the page. And I like to do this because I'm hoping that you might take this sheet home. I don't always say everything that's in the notes. I usually don't. But I hope that if you continue to study this in your small groups during the week, that this might be a bit of a guide for you, if you wish. And um, our passage today consists of three sections. And these are quite discrete sections. We know that because if you look at these sections in Luke, they occur in a different context. And part one, which I have called Ask, verses 7 to 11, are very much about prayer. And in Luke, they come in association with the Lord's Prayer and also in association with the parable of the, uh, the neighbor who goes knocking on the neighbor's door at night and wants to wake up the person because they need bread. And the person finally gets out of bread and obliges them because of the person's persistence. So part one, ask. We have in verse seven, a thesis. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then there's a little incentive. There's a justification. Why would I say that, says Jesus? Well, verse 8, for every person who asks receives, who seeks finds, and who knocks it will be opened. And then Jesus, the engaging teacher and also um, the rabbi, invokes two illustrations that um, he will use in order to make a point uh, by way of concluding inference. He says, hey, isn't it so that there's no man among you if his son asks for bread would give him a stone? I mean, what kind of a parent would do that? There aren't many. The assumption is that the answer to the question is no. Nor if he asks for a fish would give him a snake. There's a certain deception in this because bread looks like stones and fish can look like serpents, especially the kind of fish that are found in the Sea of Galilee. Some of them look rather like serpents or snakes. And so Jesus' concluding inference is, if you therefore, though being wicked, note well, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in the heavens give good things to those who ask him? You'll notice it begins and it ends with the words, ask. So here is more on the subject of prayer. And this is, in fact, the last section that Jesus will be dealing about in prayer. And I think it's worth remembering what we've learned already about prayer. 
Way back in chapter 6, Jesus began by talking about where we should pray. We shouldn't pray in public, uh, on the street corners, in order to get attention. He then spoke about how long we should pray. And the answer was, not long at all. God knows what you need already. And then in the, in the Lord's Prayer, he focused on the content of our prayer. What it is that we should be praying about. And it was keep it simple, focus on God's kingdom and your personal needs, and to be protected from harm, from the evil one or from evil. And here lastly, in Jesus' parting reflections on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us an incentive to pray. Someone has rightly called this the most encouraging passage on prayer in the entire Bible. Jesus just puts it so straightforwardly. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Friends, this isn't rocket science. In fact, it's perfectly straightforward. It's perfectly straightforward. Or is it? We're all taught in our culture to be critical thinkers. And uh, that's a good thing, I think. It keeps us from being duped. But there aren't many of us who begin to think, well, wait, wait a minute. Uh, it doesn't always happen than what we ask we receive. We seek and sometimes don't find. We knock and sometimes it appears that things aren't opened unto us. So let me spend a minute or two on the elephant in the living room, as it were, and how it is that we deal with this. Because um, as earlier this week in our discussions of staff, uh, someone reminded us that this is a difficult passage because it, it's hard to reconcile with our experience. But then someone else uh, in staff responded equally appropriately, well, of course, it's the word of God and it's true, which it is. So why is it then that sometimes we don't experience the answer to prayer and how should we respond? Well, there are some typical responses. Um, we don't have enough faith. And Jesus elsewhere does underscore that. He says that um, we are little, we are, we are sort of faith, um, um, uh, we, are, we are people of tiny faith. And sometimes it's attributed to a lack of faith. Um, and you might find that, that helpful. I think it is important. Uh, it's part of the teaching of Jesus. We're also to pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, because uh, when we open our hearts before the supernatural, we need to be clear about our communication processes, which is why we always pray in the name of Jesus. We want to identify who it is that we're asking something from, lest the, the wrong person might be tempted to intervene and to meddle. Um, so these are some of the typical responses that you find, um, and they're worth hearing about, they're worth knowing about. In the end, I think it's often the case that we still feel um, as though there's a problem here. And I want to offer a little bit of help without uh, pretending to have by any means um, all of uh, the answers. Someone has said when we turn to God in prayer to ask him for something and are not granted our request immediately, we stop praying about it. Because we think of prayer as a supernatural button to press to get what we want. We forget that unanswered prayer is still heard by God, and so his silence is for a purpose. Perhaps he wishes to do more than supply our requests 
Perhaps he wishes us to draw closer to him, test the maturity of our faith, or force us to reevaluate our request. I think all of those things are very possible. I have to admit that there's something underlying, there's something that ought not to sit entirely right with us. And this is actually affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. We are, in fact, reading only one portion of Scripture, and there are other passages of Scripture, such as Psalm 88, where the psalmist cries out in lament and says, God, I don't know where you are. And Psalm 88 is unique because he begins by saying, I don't know where you are, I don't know why I'm not getting an answer, and it ends the same. In a lot of those lament psalms, there's kind of an answer. But Psalm 88, the psalmist just continues sort of saying, God, I don't understand where you are. And our Lord himself said on the cross, my God, my God, my, why have you forsaken me? Well, I think one of the things that's a little bit helpful that is an additional consideration, and here I've moved from typical responses to additional considerations in the outline, is to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is typical uh, first century literature in that it has a future focus. It's called eschatological. And you can actually read the entire Sermon on the Mount as though it's not just for today, but also as though it's for the future. And some scholars actually argue that you should read the entire Sermon on the Mount as though it's future. So my point is that there is a future-oriented dimension to the Sermon on the Mount, but there's also another dimension to the Sermon on the Mount, and that is that it is wisdom literature. Jesus is here offering wise sayings. In fact, one of the closest analogs to the Sermon on the Mount is Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm. Well, why does that matter? Well, wisdom sayings are not promises. Wisdom sayings are things that are generally true. They are maxims. Uh, I remember hearing of a parent once who was just very disturbed because they, they brought up their child in a way that was godly and righteous, and when the child grew up, they turned away from the faith, and they felt as though the promise in Proverbs had been broken. Well, the answer, for those of you who know that verse in Proverbs, is that it's a proverb. And a proverb is not a promise, it's a statement about what is generally true. One of the other things I noticed this week was that there's no timing on this. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. He doesn't say that's going to happen tomorrow. George Mueller is a very well-known 19th century evangelist and missionary, and he ran an orphanage in the city of Bristol. And he has written a couple of books, one called Answers to Prayer, and another one published posthumously that says that it's called Release the Power of Prayer. And there's a lot to learn about prayer from Mueller. Um, Mueller had an extraordinary experience of finding God's answers to prayers. I mean, they were just incredible, one after the other, in miraculous ways often. I mean, the children would be sitting in the, in the orphanage, and Mueller would say, sit down, children, it's dinner time, and the, the cupboards were literally empty. And outside, a bread truck would get a flat tire, and the, the baker would come and say, you know, by the time I get to my destination, the bread's going to be stale. Do you need it? And the whole truckload of bread would be emptied unto, unto the children, this kind of thing. Well, one time, Mueller remembers um, praying, and he says, the funds are exhausted. We had been reduced to, to uh, so, so low as to be at the low point of selling those things which could be spared. Then a woman arrived who'd been traveling for four days, bringing with her sufficient funds for the orphanage. Well, so what? But Mueller and his friends, he recalls, had prayed for four days 
for something that had already been answered. I mean, the lady was on her way. She had decided to give the money and she was making her way to the orphanage. And so Mueller reflects on this and he writes that the money had been near the orphanage for several days without yet being given is a plain proof that it was from the beginning in the heart of God to help us. But because he delights in the prayers of his children, he had allowed us to pray for so long and maybe also to try our faith and to make the answers so much sweeter. My friend, uh, the passage does promise that God will answer our prayers, and it is in a way that is straightforward, and there's no getting around that. And I don't want to diminish that. But there are times when we need to put it in a certain context, and I think the broader teaching of Scripture does provide some of that context. I mean, in James, if we take James to be the teaching of Jesus' brother, uh, James adds that we often need to pray uh, also in faith. And James, in some ways, is a wonderful commentary on uh, the Lord's Prayer. Um, so I hope that those may be some things that are a source of encouragement. What I really want to say is that I think that this passage, verses 7 to 11, is more about the goodness of God than it is push the button and out will come the product. Jesus' motivation here is to tell us God is good and God is loving. And I just want to step back from this play the devil's advocate for a minute and say, wait a minute. How often do we ask? I mean, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've been to a lot of prayer meetings. The prayer meetings go from 8 until 9.15. And it's amazing. We talk away until 5 after 9 and then with 10 minutes left, we go to prayer. I'm thinking, like, what's with this? Uh, we often kind of just waste away our times um, of prayer. And I dare suggest that if any one of us were to take the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount uh, to their most literal end, and you were to do like the rich young ruler and give away all of your money to the poor, and the word were to get around, you probably would not lack for much. Because people would say, holy crow. Joe just sold his house and gave it to the Scott Mission. I'm going to take over a sandwich. I mean, that's really impressive. So um, the proof is in the pudding, and we dare not uh, be sure until we have actually um, undertaken the task to know in what ways God might answer. So I want to suggest that the main part of verses 7 to 11 is that God cares and he loves to give, and also that we ought to ask. One of the things that um, I, I do in my uh, spare time is I, I raise money for student scholarships in West Africa. And there are people on my list that I know are well-to-do, well-inclined, generous in spirit. And I'll send them newsletters, I'll give them updates, I'll ask for prayer, give them information. But I don't always ask. I mean, I can think of one or two people who if I probably just picked up the phone and said, you know, I would really like to ask if you could give substantially to this cause, they would say, well, now that you ask, sure, why not? This week, uh, I guess it was last week, somebody from the Diabetes Association came and, you know, it was that ring of the doorbell and I thought it might be a delivery. I went downstairs and um, answered the door and I realized, oh, it's a sales guy, gosh. And he was just walking away. Why didn't I stay upstairs? But then he turns around and he starts babbling nonstop. 
hey, good to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for taking the door. Really glad to see you. I'm working for the Diabetes Society, and I'm really anxious to want to share with you what I'm doing about the Diabetes Society, and I'm anxious for all the help that you're going to give me, and we've been doing some great work here. And I just realized he went babbled on like Jesus talks about, and it's part of their strategy. If I stop talking, he can he, he interrupt me, right? And so the guy knows that if you interrupt, if, he, if you give him opportunity, if he gives me opportunity to, uh, to interrupt, I will. So he keeps talking straight. And before long, even though I didn't want to give, <laughs> I got my wallet out. And, you know, I, I'm a supporter of the Diabetes Association. And it wasn't really something I intended to be, but it was because the guy was so um, persistent and he was asking and he, he just wouldn't shut up. And I'm thinking, well, you know, no wonder some of the pagans would pray to God nonstop because they're like the, they're like the salesman. They knock on the door and there's some stranger there. Maybe they'll get money. But Jesus is saying here, look, if parents know how to give good gifts to their children, and parents, you know, as good as they are, they're still sinful human beings, how much more is the Heavenly Father desirous of giving you that money and giving you what you need? And it's almost a little bit like the diabetes guy striking it rich because as soon as he rings the doorbell, there's somebody on the other end of the door that says, oh, I was hoping you'd come. I love the cause of diabetes. Where's my wallet? I've been looking for somebody to give my money to. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is saying here, and we don't always ask. Any men here have trouble asking for directions, even from a complete stranger that you will never see again? You're traveling in a foreign country? Why don't you ask for, oh, I ask. Oh, I hate to ask. Asking puts me in such a position of humility. I hate asking. The passage is saying, friends, God loves you, and he wants you to ask. You know, this whole thing of God's love, I just want to spend a minute or two on, and I want to use a couple of those mushy illustrations that can jolt your emotions. And I'm just wanting to warn you of that, because... Um, Sometimes preachers will manipulate your emotions, and I may be going to do that a little bit, but I'm doing it on the grounds that we need to be reminded that God actually loves us. So, um, here we go. The story is told of a father who puts his son to bed, and as he's putting his son to bed, he said to his six-year-old son, Son, when do I love you more? Uh, when you're fighting with your sister and not listening to mom and dad, or when you're helping your mom and dad and doing what you're told. And the little six-year-old boy says, um, well, now that I think of daddy, both times. And the father says, you're right. That's right. And so the answer comes back, um, why, son, am I like that? Because I'm your special guy, says the six-year-old. For that was his dad's special name for him, Daddy's Special Guy. The boy knew his father loved him, no matter what, because he was Daddy's Special Guy. You are Daddy's Special Guy and Daddy's Special Girl. And he loves to give you good things. And so whatever the data says, in terms of maybe not always getting what you're asking for, we are not allowed to doubt from this passage that God loves us and that he wants us to ask. Ask. God cares. Someone once said, the love of God is like the Amazon River flowing down to water one daisy. Another little anecdote. Someone said, I asked Jesus how much he loved me. He stretched out his arms and he said, this much. 
And then he died. We're not very good at loving ourselves. God is much better at loving us than we are ourselves. Ask, and it will be given unto you. <laughs> what have you got to lose? It's even biblical. Ask, and it will be given unto you. Okay, the next two sections are kind of come more quickly. We've got ask, and now we have imagine. In verse 12, we have what's called the golden rule. And I remember uh, I was, had a farmer friend who said to his son, um, son, you know the golden rule. And the son said, yes, dad, I know the golden rule. And his father said, well, not that golden rule. It's this golden rule. The guy with the gold rules. So that's often the way it is, isn't it? It's the guy with the gold rules. But this is actually an invitation to pick up on the generosity of God and to extend it to others. There were people in ancient times who knew how to put this negatively. Uh, Rabbi Hillel said it. He said, don't do to others all the rotten stuff that you wish others wouldn't do to you. And Jesus took this teaching and he, he turned it on his head. And he said, I want you to use your imagination and to think of all of those things that you wish other people would do for you and go ahead and do it to them. It's one of these um, uh, kind of mutinous, pay it forward, revolutionary sorts of statements. Jesus says, think, imagine other people and what you would like other people do to you, to do to you, and then go ahead and do it to them. Lots of opportunity here to imagine and to do wonderful things for other people. And it's not just people in the church, it's people more broadly and across the board. Again, there's a genuineness here and there's an invitation to kingdom living that I think would make a great difference in our world if we were to follow it. I want to share just one anecdote having to do with this imagine in verse 12 and I'll be quick. I remember reading a book by Stephen Covey, maybe you've read it, called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And if you haven't read it, it's a good read. Covey is a Mormon, um, but his values in many ways are, are akin to the Judeo-Christian tradition. And one of the things that he talks about is the abundance mentality. And I think that the golden rule assumes the abundance mentality. And the abundance mentality is that there's enough goodness to go around. We don't need to hoard it. He says some people have the scarcity mentality, and that means that if you're, if you're in a class and the professor praises your, your, your classmate, oh, well, there's not enough praise to go around, and if that person's getting attention, maybe there's not enough for me. And the abundance mentality is, no, there's lots to go around. So this means that you can take joy in the success of other people, knowing that there's enough blessing and enough of God's goodness to go around. So what's given to somebody else isn't taking something out of your pie. There's an overflowing abundance to God's goodness that allows us and gives us license to be charitable and to rejoice when others succeed. I mean, there's no scarcity mentality when it comes to God's goodness. And I think that's one of the incentives behind uh, this prayer and this request. Um, do to others what you would have them do to you. Therefore, says Jesus, as a concluding summary of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, all those things you wish people would do to you and for you, so also you should do to and for them. This epitomizes the law and the prophets, at least the human side of the law and the prophets. 
Jesus clarifies elsewhere that there's something missing here that has to do with the love of God. But this epitomizes the law and the prophets and the admonitions on how we're to behave towards one another. And then finally, we come to the concluding part of the Sermon on the Mount, and there are three contrasts. And we're just going to deal with one of them very quickly this afternoon, and that is the two roads. There are two roads, there are two trees, and there are two houses. And the two trees and the two houses we'll look at soon. But Jesus here, thirdly in this passage, is telling us to find. He says, and I refer you to the translation, enter. And enter in Matthew in the, in, normally means enter the kingdom of God. So I've added it. Enter the kingdom of God through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and roomy is the way that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter through it. And then he says, how narrow is the gate and constrictive is the path that leads to life. And few are those who find it. My friends, this is frightening. It's a warning that Jesus tags on to the end of his sermon. And he says, there's the way that most people are going and that it seems like the right way to go. But it's the wrong way and it will lead to destruction. He says, over there on the sidelines, it's a little hard to know exactly how the gate and the, uh, and the road imagery work, but it's possible that Jesus is pointing to the fact, you see off the main road over there, there's a, there's, a, there's a narrow gate. There's a little narrow gate that you need to find. And most people don't follow it. And so if you are living your life the way that most other people do, if you're even thought to be one of those good eggs, like everybody else in your neighborhood, uh, chances are um, you should be thinking about whether you're on the narrow path. And I have put in the, narrow, in the, in the footnotes that um, things like whatever floats your boat, go with the flow, do what comes naturally, and more generally even doing what strikes others as normal and right, that's, that's, on, the, that's on the wide path. None of you are probably old enough to remember W.C. Fields. But he was, oh, Harold is, he chuckled. W.C. Fields, he, he, he was a kind of a comedian, and he, he used to sort of say, I hate children. But W. Fields um, said, and it wasn't very nice of him to say that he hated children, but actually W.C. Fields, he lived through the earthquake in Southern California uh, in 1933. And W.C. Fields um, uh, said, I'm going to get the quote right here by finding it on my page. He said, after the earthquake in Southern California in 1933, he said, we're crazy to live here. But there sure are a lot of us who do. And you think like, yeah, why are we living on a fault line? I mean, it, it, it's a nice climate. But he said, how can we be so crazy, this many people, to be living on a fault line? And I think the message is saying, friends, what seems normal to us is not and we need God's grace to find that narrow path and to walk along it. So if you're out of step with your neighbors, that's probably a good thing. If you're just like everybody else, then you might want to look and ask what road you're on. And here, Jesus says in his concluding words, and with that I will close, Jesus says at the end of his passage here, how narrow is the gate and constrictive is the path that leads to life. And he doesn't say how few are those who, um, who enter it, but how few are those who find it. So it takes us back to the idea of prayer. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. That includes the narrow road. 
Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. My friends, the emphasis in this text is on the Father's breathtaking readiness to give his asking children what is good for them. God loves you. He really does. And he wants us to ask. It can't be that hard. It's a good idea. Amen.